You're listening to Deal Talk with 7MA, providing invaluable insight into investment banking and the M&A space through honest conversations with industry thought leaders, business pioneers, and innovators. We'll pull back the curtain and give you the inside scoop on trends in our targeted industries and provide you the tools to better position your company in today's market. This is a special episode of Deal Talk with 7MA, featuring a panel discussion on international M&A trends that was originally part of our Access 2021 event. So welcome everybody to the Access Conference of 7MA Advisors. We are going to give you a couple of minutes more to let the, the rest of the participants to join this panel. Again, good morning, good afternoon, to everybody, thank you for, for being part of this year's Access Conference. I will do a keep introduction of myself. My name is Horacio Gennaropoulos. I'm a manager director at Seven Mile, in charge of the Latin American coverage since May this year. I was the CFO at Betatrix Software Factory, a company that Seven Mile advised during the selling process to Globant. And after that acquisition, I joined the corporate development practice at Globant been part of many of the transactions they did last year. In this case, I'm, I'm really very, very pleased to host this panel about international M&A focused in Latin America. We will have the privilege to listen firsthand about the experience of an international investor in the region, like Mario from Trivest, and from a founder of a Latin American company that was acquired last year, Danny from Argano UV. So, we will be open to questions at the end of the presentation. So thank you both for your presence today. And please share with us some additional information about your background and experiences. So please, Mario, could you begin? Uh, thank you, Horacio. And it's a, it's a pleasure to be with you and Danny today and everyone else. I'm Mario Masri. I'm one of the uh, principals at Trivest. We're a firm that's focused on uh, partnering with founder and family-owned businesses. I specifically focus on our non-control fund which means uh, I'm taking minority positions in those founder-owned companies. And then we help support the growth initiatives that the founders have set out. Traditionally, we've only invested in the U.S. and Canada, but more recently, I've led and oversee our investments in Unosquare and Veritran, both of which have uh, pretty significant positions and operations in Latin America. Okay, thank you very much. Daniel, could you please? First, thank you for hosting me and, and, and thank you for the opportunity. Well, my name is Danny, Danny Lopetin. I'm a co-founder of the company formerly known as United Virtualities, now known as Argano UV. We started a few years back uh, out of Argentina as a partner to creative agencies in the U.S. And we were technology agnostic. We were most of a, mostly near short service a provider from Latin America into the U.S., mostly focused on the digital agency network. And eventually with the years, we became one of the largest e-commerce suppliers out of, out of out of Latin America into the US, specifically on Salesforce Commerce Cloud. And we were about 150 people when we were acquired in February of this year by Argado. So thank you for hosting us. That's a bit of the background. And I'll go deeper into the story of, of how we were acquired and everything with subsequent questions. Okay, thank you very much. So just begin with you, Mario. You've been in the news in Latin America because of the acquisition of, of Beritana, as you currently said. So could you give us some idea around the, the rationale behind that investment you made? 
Absolutely, Horacio. Um, for those that aren't as familiar with Veritran, uh, very interesting company. They're providing software solutions to help their clients, which are banks and financial institutions, with digital transformation. Uh, so one of is a broad example. They are providing the mobile banking apps and the and the digital, the web-based banking apps for some of the largest across LATAM. Very interesting investment for us. Really, from the first discussion we had with the team, and this I think is a really important part in the states, but especially when we go internationally, it was obvious how talented they were and really how deep that talent went. And I've had the pleasure more and more with my conversations after we made the investment. Uh, to meet more of the team. And it really, I've noticed, has permeated the organization. What really attracted us beyond the team was the need for digital transformation in LATAM. And when you look at the unbanked and underbanked populations beyond just the actual existing financial institution penetration, there's a huge white space. And both the governments and the private sector need to bring the populations into the financial institutions to create more wealth for the population and, and to really support commerce, which Veritran is, is really helping do that. Their product is truly exceptional. And really, we've noticed that, you know, their customer service is, is top notch as well. You know, they really, once they, once they get a new client, they, they keep them for years. Um, and so with us, we made a minority investment. And really, our goal is to do two simple things uh, from the start further professionalizing their operations and the institution and really help them drive into the United States where we think their product is as applicable. And even though the, the underlying trend for the need is not necessarily the underbanked and unbanked populations, there is still a huge need to convert legacy systems and legacy banking technology to kind of the modern day. So really interesting business and uh, really grateful that we could, we could have that partnership with them. Okay. Thank you very much. I think it's this is a great story and that happened during, during this year. So, Danny, being from LATAM, could you give us some context about the main challenges, political instability, change rate fluctuation, etc., you faced during the negotiation process with Afghanistan? Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a very, it's a great question and, and one that, that's not easy to, to tackle. So, first, I want to say something which is LATAM is, is definitely a, a complex construction, right? I mean... If you think about LATAM, right, it's composed of many, many different countries, cultures. There's two major languages and there's about 33 countries that compose Latin America. So, you know, there is no such a thing as being an expert of Latin America. You would have to have, you no know, 33 different regulatory macroeconomic, right? You know, it's, it's a construction. We don't even have a unified currency, right? So I will focus on the markets that I know the best and the ones that I run operations, which is Argentina and Mexico. Brazil would be the third largest market there. So I would consider those three out of the 33, the main, you know, markets out of Latin Americans, two of them where I operated and had the, the, my largest undertakings and, and whatnot. So it's important to understand this construction uh, so that we understand how to tag the question. Um, so also our business model, the one in, in, in within my, my business was focused on the U.S. market. So I had I, I was mostly a delivery center out of Latin America with for U.S. clients. And 95% of my workforce was based either in Argentina or Mexico. That's about 130 people that I had between those two countries. Now, the question before, when you're on my end, which is on the you know selling side, not on the buying side, and I don't know how many of the people in the audience are on each side of the equation. So I'll speak first to the selling side here. 
Um, one of the things that you need to understand when you're facing this, this situation of, of Latin America is that you need to understand how you're going to approach the question of, you know, how do you become not too complex, given the fact that there's 33 different regulatory tax, you know, and possibilities across Latin America. And the way you want to do it is, especially if you're Argentinian, because Mexicans and Brazilians tend to go less out of their boundaries, but Argentinians do this more often and they tend to spread themselves around. In, is you you don't want to become too complex, so you need to be careful about you know the the complexities of reach in terms of your ability to scale up your resources versus becoming too complex, given the nature of how Latin America is structured. You know from from what I said before. So that's for from the selling side. That's that's a consideration point. If you're selling, you don't want to become too complex, given the fact you don't want to become too Latam. Uh, you want to you want to consolidate as much as possible within certain boundaries. Understand where the markets that you have preference and are the best suited for your strategy. So I decided Mexico and Argentina for myself, but different companies will have different decision making processes from from the selling side. Now um, that's the first part I, I would say, and and one that's important. The second thing that I have here is that out of all the countries, Argentina is a nightmare. I, I, I don't, it, it's by, by any degree, it's, it's a fact, right? Um, it, it is a lot more challenging to operate in Argentina in comparison to all the other countries uh, within, within Latin America. Not that the other countries are, are simple, you know, they're all going through changes and, and whatnot, but Argentina definitely, definitely is the most complex out of all of them from the exchange rate factors, from economics, from regulatory components, from tax components, you name it, Argentina is probably out there being been the most challenging out of all of them to operate in. So, you know, what you want to do, um, you want to make sure that you're working with, you know, your lawyers and your accountants. If you're trying to sell your company and prepare a company for a future exit strategy, you want to make sure that you will work with them to give you the flexibility, but that you stay within certain boundaries, um, meaning kosher boundaries. It's very easy within the Argentina framework to stay off, to go out of bounds very easily, even without doing that on purpose. It's just so complex to navigate the water. So you want to have great, great lawyers. You want to have great accountants that help you navigate that and prepare your company for that. Um, and and once, once you go into a due diligence process and you find a buyer that's willing to have, have the risk tolerance to invest in Latin America, and especially in Argentina, given the circumstances, you want to be as transparent as possible from the get-go. You want to you want to let them know how challenging operating in Argentina can become, and and you want to let them know. You want to you want, you want to give it to them from the onset, right? Even before the due diligence, because once you know you start working together the day after, you're going to come to them and say, "Hey, you know, I told you six months ago we were operating this way." Well. Everything has changed now. Now we need to operate 180 degrees differently because the, everything has changed now. The whole framework has changed for us because exchange rates normalized because of whatever different macroeconomic components. So you want to be upfront about you know those challenges and you want to work with your CFOs and your CEOs from the acquiring company and make sure they understand you know the challenges ahead. Uh, and, and, and if they have a risk tolerance, then it's a great, great bet because Argentina has amazing talent. I hope I was able to answer that question. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yes. We we leave it there, so we know what you're talking about. <laughs> so, Mario, Mario, as an investor in the region, uh, how do you consider Latin American companies with the local Latin American clients in terms of, let's say, valuation and risk versus another company like it was uh, Bellapix in my case or United Virtuality with uh, the majority of the revenue coming from U.S. clients? 
Horacio, it's a great question. And I think uh, Danny set me up for one part that's really important. And I didn't mention it. You know, Trivest, the way we partner with founders, we have a whole host of ways that we're just so focused on that segment of the market. But key to us is we don't retrade our deals. And why I'm saying Danny set me up is that transparency to founders, especially in LATAM, given the regulatory environments, the complexities that occur, you know, with Veritran, with Unisquare, these founders have been super clear with us about any of the challenges they've ever faced. And so as we do our diligence, right, it's simply a conversation of, okay, that's how the market works. And so really, really critical when you do think about valuations, when you do think about risks and, you know, Danny's comment is spot on. You have to have much more of a conversation just to understand those global and, and kind of macro dynamics. But to your question specifically, there's no question there's more risk when you look at cross-border transactions, and especially with Latin America, because you're now dealing with talent pools in multiple countries. In the case of Veritrend, you're dealing with customers across multiple countries. So you've got economic and political considerations that are wildly different, as well as foreign exchange. So it's a great question. And the way we kind of think about that is there's basic standard investment criteria that any investor will look at, customer concentrations, growth rates, how healthy are your margins versus the industry or just in general, you know, all these basic things. For us, it's more elevating those, the criteria set to be more rigid, to be just, they have to stand out more. The, the company has to be a little bit better than I would say if it was less complex of a situation. So it's not necessarily that LATAM changes the criteria. It's just the fact that we're looking at something that's more complex. And so what, what I've noticed and what the way we've approached it is we're just more selective internationally in general, and we're focused on a lot of higher growth opportunities. So Unosquare has only U.S. clients, for example, but has full offshore, nearshore uh, delivery, mostly out of Mexico. And so where Veritran is all today Latin American revenues and all Latin American delivery, you know, we're focused on high growth, high potential opportunities, right? Digital transformation trends, software, things like that, where we can especially support the business with that, getting ready for that next step. How do we get you ready for the premium exit? And especially in the case of Veritran, penetrating the U.S. market, which we know very well for, from our 40-year history of, of investing. So great question. There's no magic kind of silver bullet to how you figure it out. It's more Make sure you understand it, and I think elevate the criteria a little bit further than usual. Okay, thank you very much. So, Danny, we know that the market for talent in Latin America is very competitive nowadays. On the other hand, many programmers do not have the English proficiency that clients in the U.S. may require. So how are you tackling this situation when you have to recruit and train new resources to continue growing the business? Yeah, it's a question that I get quite often, honestly, and one that I have open discussions. I participate in, you know, entrepreneurs ecosystems, and, and this is a question that comes up quite often. And here's the first premise is first we need to understand that not every company in the ecosystem it's focused on the US market, right? There's a significant pool of companies in the IT sector that actually focused on the local clients, the um, local and maybe multinational clients, but based on Latin America. So there's a growing demand for IT services coming from Latin America region itself. So, you know, we, we need to separate a bit whether, what's your strategy? In, in my case, the strategy was 100% revenue was US, US market-based. So it, it would definitely need for it to have 
an English-speaking workforce uh, with certain capacity. But that's not the case across all, all situations. So it's not, I would say these days, it's not necessary. Before it was like a mandate because everything was, you know, demand came from the U.S., but these days demand is a bit more spread out. Now, um, to tackle this, the specifics of the question, I would say um, it requires, a, it's more art than science. And in this way, in, in the same manner that I said, that America is just not one construction like, a, like the, you know, European Union may be. So I, I'm going to focus on, on my experience between Argentina and Mexico, and I'll give you this example. Argentina, for example, usually find talent that has certain high standards of English. However, they're very informal how they speak English, right? Most of my people, when they were approaching clients, they were talking to clients that they were their, their best friends. That's just, you know, the way Argentines operate. So uh, they had certain level of good ability to speak English, but the approach was not, not business jargon, right? It was very, very informal. So, so that's for the Argentina, in my experience. Mexico, on the other hand, for example, you get, you get people who have their English, their writing skills are very, very developed, but very, very formal. They're writing, you know, very formal letters all the time. Even if it's like an internal communication, it's like a, you know, it's a very governmental style of writing. It seems like it, it's, it's, it's too much. And and so you know we we put in place different programs that um, were very locally targeted and try to understand what were the issues that were floating and coming from the education system itself and 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 there's nothing you can do about it but adjust and adapt and so that's what we made we we tailored made our programs um, and we made different you know put in plan different solutions given given the context. I would say it's not a huge challenge, a non-insurmountable challenge. Globant is an example of a company that has done it at scale and where they have a majority of their workforce from America that speaks fluently and can communicate fluently with English. So it definitely a solvable problem. Great, great approach. So Mario, we can see huge amounts of capital flows from investors to Brazil and Mexico and also big Brazilian companies trying to gain a footprint in the, in the United States by M&A processes. Do you expect some concentration of investments in those two countries? As Danny said, we are 33 different countries in LATAM. So uh, do you expect this type of concentration or are you also analyzing other countries in the region? It's a, it's a good question. I think it depends to a degree on what you're trying to tackle. So if it's a let's maybe take it from the top down, you know, the largest countries, Brazil, Mexico, Colombia, Argentina, just from an economic scale, I would expect to see a lot more U.S. investment in the largest economies, just given the, the scale and the ability to, to drive value from there. I think one, one country that is interesting, just because we've talked a lot about Argentina, obviously investors have some reservations given the history, but I think what's really interesting is all of us know on this call, the, the talent pool and the set of entrepreneurs there it's undeniable how deep it, it runs. And so I think we're going to continue to see Brazil coming out, you know, on the top of the list, Mexico coming out. I think we're going to see more individuals leaning into Argentina because there just is so much opportunity. And, you know, individuals like ourselves, right, are, are doing that, right? And we will eventually pave the way for more um, as we do it as well. Brazil, we personally haven't dipped our toes into Brazil. You know, I think it's more distinct. And I think, uh, you know, investors have to recognize that. As Danny's highlighted, you know, all of LATAM is, is very unique. Each country is, is unique. Brazil, just with a different language, I think changes that uh, to a large degree. 
We are also, you know, looking at some of the smaller economies, Bolivia, for example, we haven't made the announcement yet, but we've, we're making a small acquisition there. It should be coming out soon with Unosquare. And so even though it's a smaller economy, you know, we see tremendous opportunity in some of these, let's say, more underlooked, uh, more, uh, you know, un undeveloped uh, economies or of scale, at least. But there's just still a ton of opportunity for companies trying to gain a foothold into the U.S. I think partnering with individuals like ourselves that have that capability really helps them do that will help avoid some of the landmines the same way for myself partnering in LATAM. Having good teams, having good local partners helps me avoid some of the things that I wouldn't necessarily know. So I think we're going to see a lot more in uh, the largest countries, but I, th I think it's going to slowly trickle into the others, especially with add-ons and maybe some smaller kind of tuck-in style m and Great. Thank you very much, Mario. This is very helpful. So, Danny, an M&A transaction process is normally intense uh, in time consuming for founders and managers. We all know that. Normally, they, they think that after closing, the situation ends, but both know that this is not what really happens. Okay. So can you tell us your experience in both the transaction and the integration process after you sold the company to organically? Yeah, sure. So, so I guess I'll speak more to, again, to the sellers here on the people who are entrepreneurs or who are thinking of selling their company as an exit strategy for themselves. Well, I'll approach this a bit you know, unconventionally and say that what I've seen, again, from the ecosystem um, in general, from entrepreneurs, and I'll, I'll, I'll use myself also as an example here of what happens, is that first, there's less of a transactional experience from at the entrepreneurial level from American founders. Most most of us or most of the ecosystem is do, is having their first experience with, you know, building, growing, and selling a company, it's a less mature market from that perspective in comparison to what you would find as a, a U.S. founders, which are usually, you know, more mature from that perspective. So there is that, you know, situation that you, you should not discount it as minor. And why is that? Because usually the Americans, you know, like going back to the regulatory framework, we had to overcome so many difficulties in building our companies in comparison with so many unknowns that we kind of, became very emotionally attached to what we built uh, to a certain degree. And that's, you know, there's many different, it's just Latin Americans are very emotional. Plus we're not, we're not as experienced. There's many different components, but, but here's the interesting thing. You know, when you're selling your company, it's probably one of the most transactional processes you'll ever encounter. So you're actually, you know, coming at this, you're selling your company you know, you're highly emotional about it. It's your baby. You built it. You overcame so many obstacles. You come from an underdeveloped region of the world, and suddenly you're faced with lawyers and etc. They're coming at it purely, purely transactionally. So I would say that the first things that we need to do from as an entrepreneur is we need to understand how to regulate that emotional component from you know as Latin American. Whether that's even possible as Latin American, that's another question. But it's definitely something to understand that we need to adjust the mindset and, and, and finding the right balance to have a more successful you know, outcome in terms of ability to, to overcome whatever necessary obstacles that are coming from, from that transactionally. The second thing that I will say on this is you need to find the right partner that will uh, work alongside you. For us, it was Seven Mile, and it was an easy process, and, and we were lucky. We were super fortunate to have found Seven Mile throughout that process because they, they came to us not only and help us, you know, from the formality 
point of view and, and going through the transaction, but they were probably very, they had a very humane approach and understood uh, that, you know, we needed certain support from an emotional perspective as well. And, and you have to know that, you have to understand that if you're gonna work with Latin American founders, uh, you have to find that right balance. Um, the other thing that I will say, um, I don't want to go over too much, is if, you ha- if you're lucky enough, like we were, to have several multiple offers on the table, you want to you want to try to choose the one that you think has the, is the best fit for you. Not the best offer, but the best fit. I'm telling this to the sellers in the crowd. I did not go for the best offer. I, 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 we did our research. We went, we went for a combination of multiple things because we, we, we kind of understood that the day after wasn't going to be easy. Uh, and, and hence, we wanted to make sure that we were going to be in business with people that we felt comfortable to be in business with, not just because they were offering us a great check, it was not just the, the only thing that we we considered as part of the decision process. Um, so again, as a conclusion, you got to do the research on, on who your buyer is, get the references, the day after is going to be, you know, intense and time consuming. You should choose the best partner to walk alongside with you. Uh, for our case, it was Simon Mile. And, 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 and you know, in, in, in essence, the impact of the next day should not be minimized by any degree. Great. Thank you very much, Danny. So uh, I would like both of you to tackle one final question for me. So, Marian, Danny, what role do cultural differences play in M&A and investing? I think you, you gave a lot of examples, but you've been acquiring companies in Latin America, solid company, and now you're in the process of acquiring other ones. And so please, can you give us more context about the importance of the cultural difference during those processes? I think Danny hit on part of it. You know, the Latin American market is not as developed with M&H volume, the volume of transactions, right? And whereas in the U.S., People hear every day of a neighbor selling their business, even if it's a family-owned business that's existed for 30 years, not even the exciting, let's say, tech businesses. You know, there's just M&As ingrained in, in kind of the U.S. culture, the media, just discussions. And I think that is that prevalence is one of the largest differences that you see in the two markets. And where historically, you know, with, with LATAM, the exit strategy that I've, that I've seen is more geared towards either a VC investment and then a strategic exit or a VC investment to an IPO. Not as much of a standard private equity style investment growth or that private equity is even an exit. I think we're seeing more and more of that coming to bear. And as that happens, just you know, to Danny's point, the sophistication level, the comfort level with attorneys, bankers, you know, advisors it increases. One thing that's interesting, Danny was mentioning, you know, lawyers come at things sometimes transactionally. We often, you know, when we run into founders uh, just everywhere, uh, have suggested even attorneys that we've worked with to, for the founders to speak with them because you really need to make sure you have a founder friendly attorney on both sides because otherwise we all know, you know, things can just go very awry. It's not just about, a quota negotiation. Really, it's it's about being partners together and things can fall apart that way. So we always try to be cognizant that way. So I think as the market continues to develop, you know, from a, just a comfort level with M&A, that'll be very good. And that's a clear cultural difference. It's just not as common. And then another one, I mean, language plays a huge role. Um, I will be I will be very humble and say I'm proficient in Spanish. I am not fluent but you know the my ability to just speak spanish 
you know, helps founders gain comfort, helps them under, understand that I care right about their business. I care about the culture and, you know, a lot, a lot less gets lost in translation, which that just that ability to lean in helps people a lot. It's just, it's basic relationships and, and things like that. But that's a big difference, right? In the US, you know, English is the language of business. In this instance, you we're speaking in both languages, maybe. And if you're at Brazil, maybe there's three languages at play. So those are at least a couple of things that, that I've noticed a lot. Yeah, so I, I've, I've given this topic a, a, a large amount of time on, on thought process. I think there's extensive literature on, on the subject of cultural importance when you're talking about M&A extensive research and the data is very obvious that it is probably the major factor that determines your post transaction success or failure or if not if if not the most important definitely up uh, up there and uh, being there so now if if you're like me or most deals that i'm aware of and there's a certain amount of earnout involved in your right in your deal which is you know i would say on average most most deals have some earnout, so there's some post acquisition success that you need to find within a new framework. Then you definitely want to understand from a selling perspective that you got to do your research about how good of a cultural fit you're going to be with your buyer. Because if your success at the end of the day, your monetary success is attached to the, your ability to you know get together with them and work together in, in for the next foreseeable future, then then then, then you should not you know you should not undermine the importance of, of cultural differences when you come into a deal. And the way that I, I approached it is I did my research. I talked to the change management teams on the buyer side, if, if they had any, the integration teams to understand how, how that would play out and how they were going to approach this. And the other thing that I, I thought it was very important is to prepare my team for change and, and be very honest up front with them and tell them, yeah, we've been working for seven years in this manner, with this culture, things are just not going to be the same. And we don't know how, but you want to prepare your management for change, and simply don't know what that means. But you you don't you don't want to you don't want to uh, you know you don't want to undermine that that as well. And and lastly, and and talking about Mario's point about legal frameworks, one of the things that you might want to do as a seller is if you see any reason for concern from that perspective. You might want to talk to your, you know, attorneys and see how that can maybe make some framework made into the purchasing agreement that protects you in somehow from just the issues that may arise from cultural differences. You might want to mitigate them from a legal perspective, which, you know, I think that was an important part of my process as well. Great. Thank you very much. I have a couple of questions from the audience. Here's one Mario is asking, do you think that Veritran can capture a share in the U.S. low-code market? Absolutely. I mean, we we made the investment without that being a necessity for our investment thesis, but there's absolutely no question, especially when you look at the quality of the product, you know, the, the company, the employees, everything. There's no question that we're very, very confident that they'll be able to gain some share in the U.S. And, um, you know, with that, you know, I think we create an even further global organization. With Veritran, I wouldn't be surprised if in five years, you know, we're in multiple continents, you know, beyond just North America and South America. So there's a huge opportunity there. And that's partly one of the, the benefits of SaaS, right? You know, in software, you can expand. It's, nothing's easy, you know, also, um, you know, it's not easy to always do that, but there's no question. And I think uh, quality is number one. And then well, maybe even I'll flip it. 
do you have a strong value proposition and do your clients need your product? And then what's your quality and what's your execution? And so if you have those two, I, absolutely. Thank you very much. Uh, Daniel, I have a question for you. What is your best market size estimate for the digital commerce implementation services and growth rate? I'll try to answer that <laughs> in the best possible way. So we were lucky because when we went into e-commerce, um, we went into e-commerce pre-pandemic times and, you know, we, we didn't know what was going to happen. We just thought e-commerce was, you know, there was a growing sector. We were getting a lot of requests for Shopify and Magento. And, and then we decided to go in, in into Salesforce very, 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 very early on. And what we saw during the pandemic times is, you know, we couldn't keep up with the demand. Uh, the demand just exploded on, on, on our faces and we couldn't produce enough resources to even cover for the demand. It was, at, uh, and then, and then uh, at the same time, we were dealing with the due diligence process, which came during the pandemic times as well. Um, so um, I would say right now it's the American market is hot. It's red hot, A&L for whatever resources you have. There's growth all over the place. Uh, there's growth at every segment of the digital industry, e-commerce just being one of them. We are seeing 25, 30% year-on-year growth uh, within our, our our own you know experience, our company. So I don't know if that's a benchmark that you can use for the large, you know, Latin <laughs> market. But I can tell you that I, I'm I, I, 20 to 30 percent year-on-year growth is is what I'm seeing right now across the ecosystem and the people that I'm talking with. Okay, great. Thank you very much, Mario. Another question for you: How did you see investment opportunities in IT companies in Colombia? So, how is Colombia perceived as an investment market? So, it's a great question. So, um, a couple of things. One, Veritran has about I think it's it's over a hundred professionals in Colombia. So we didn't just invest into an Argentinian company. We invested into a, truly a multinational with Colombia as a significant presence. Uh, Unisquare as well now has uh, about 30 professionals in, in Colombia. So we are actively pursuing organic growth in Colombia. We view the market very, very strong from an IT perspective. And I actually am evaluating a number of opportunities in the region or in the country right now. Uh, so very much like the economy, like the country, everything has its unique co components to it, as we've discussed, but there's definitely a lot of opportunity there. And this is something just in general, though, you know, I don't, we can go country by country, but each of these regions, you know, I think has just been missed to some degree for years. And I think people are more and more awakening to the the talent pools that exist. And the more we look into these companies and speak with founders, the more excited we honestly get. There's just tremendous talent and tremendous growth. So both domestically and internationally with them. But uh, so like Columbia, love Columbia, um, and would like to do a deal there beyond just our organic growth and organic operations. Okay, great. Nani, one question for you. How, how, how do you see companies uh, investing in Latin American companies with big clients in Latin American countries? That is, not companies that want to sell services to the state, but companies that are currently doing very well locally and they want to continue doing locally. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm familiar with a couple of them. You know, Wallox was an example of a company that had, you know, a, a large amount of clients in America and just quite recently acquired by Accenture. Um, I think I think it's, it, it, it's an interesting proposition, one that, you know, you, you need to be a fearsome entrepreneur to... to uh, willing to, you know, live off solely the, the American market. Uh, I don't, 
I don't discredit that strategy. I think there's certain elements of it that make sense. I personally, from my my experience, I I early on decided that uh, I couldn't, I would not have the stomach for it because the payment cycles are very long. Uh, they're 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 not easy um, in in terms of you know financing. So you better have a very solid financial structure and and a consolidated one, and you, you better have to do your research on your clients. Uh, there's certain risk elements that 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 come from just you know having an entity or or an operations have most of its business from Latin America and and but the ones that I've seen the I've seen the, the growing demand and and from from Latin American clients the only issue is that there's growing demand also from US clients for Latin American services and they're willing to pay three times as much so it'll be hard for Latin American clients to be able to keep up with the, you know, <laughs> at the rates that they want to pay. So I think it, there's a huge upside for companies um, on my end because demand is so hot right now that you can actually pick and choose your strategy. I have, I have a question here talking about how do you tackle with tax implication during this M&A process? Great question and a little bit easy uh, to answer. Given the the uncertainties when you take a look, I mean, just within the U.S., the changes that we have in the U.S. that happen from time to time, the changes that are contemplated today, and then when you expand it to, you know, 30 plus other countries, we tend to not try and develop an investment thesis around taxes. It also just isn't the way that we invest. We're growth investors. And so really making sure that we're investing behind a good business that has a very strong proposition, has the growth rate and kind of the capability to adapt if things do change. That's really how we think about it. So in short, I don't really, I don't structure around or do deals around taxes. I will try to make the tax structure as efficient as possible. But at the end of the day, we're heavy taxpayers in all of our businesses, just by the nature that we're focused on growth and not and not trying to engineer around something. So it's a great question. And, uh, you know, there's there's no easy solution to it, especially when you're in as many jurisdictions and, and everything. We try and, the more important thing is we try and simplify corporate structures for an exit. So, you know, when, uh, when a buyer comes in to look at the business, it makes sense as a structure for them. That to us is the, the most important thing down the road. We want to simplify that exit process. Okay, great. Great comment for, for the Latin American audience. Thank you very much, Mario. Hey, Sunny, can't you just, in general, discuss the Latin American IT services market as it is nowadays? Well, yeah, Latin American. Again, I, 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 I can tell you what's happening in Mexico, Brazil, and Argentina, certainly. And I, I know some of the minor countries that I'm trying to see whether to not open operations right now. Like, I think Mario mentioned Bolivia. We're looking to Bolivia as well as a potential hub. For us, we really hire our first two employees, so we're we we definitely looking to expand and go beyond our main hubs into smaller markets. So, um, I can I can speak from experience, and I can tell you that right now, the best description is a hot big mess. Is is probably <laughs> what the the best in a good way. There's so much demand and and not enough supply to keep up with it. This is creating a kind of um, a wage a wage distortion across the market. So it is it is putting a lot of pressure on cost across the ecosystem, especially on, on the engineers. I would say that's 
that's the skill that right now it's short in terms of supply in comparison to the demand. Um, again, the ecosystem is is super interesting. There's a lot of funds coming into the market, especially for product based, uh, for the product based IT, such as fintech or other product based services, which I did not see in previous years. So it'll be interesting to see this. I think um, I always started this business from the premise of how can I showcase Latin American? Because when I started, India was you know the main market that was selling services to the U.S. And I said, how can I showcase that there's a, a big enough talent pool here in America? And what I'm seeing is finally that that dream coming true. I see there is going, this is going to be, you know, the IT sector is going to create a huge impact on the well-being of, of Latin America in general. I think it's going to pull out a lot of people from from certain, you know, middle class or, or lower middle class status into, into much better futures. And, and I think that's, that's a great future. And I think at one point, you know, supply will stabilize and, and we'll see Latin American market, a cohesive, stronger competition to what the Asian markets may look like. We have two more minutes. So uh, I would like both of you to give some final comments or recommendations, suggestions to the sellers from a Latin American country facing an m process. Do you want to, to begin, Mario, please? Sure. So it's a great question. I think Danny made one of the most important points early on, and it's, again, it comes from the values that Trivest tries to have as well. We try to provide founders with transparency in our approach, and we try to provide them with certainty. And so the same being provided to us is incredibly valuable. So I think when you have that first conversation, be open, be honest, sell the positives, explain the story. And if there's something, you know, if it's a tax matter, if it's an employee matter, be open and honest about it. And then I think, you know, individuals like myself will then be able to make an honest and informed decision because the worst thing for the founders to go down the path and then have uh, be disappointed because something comes out in diligence, right? Investors, we can, we can figure out the solutions. We can be patient and work together. Um, so I think that's critical. And then, you know, just find the right partners, right? You know, Seven Miles is a great firm to, to work with. They, they have connectivity to the right people. But finding the right partner for you, you know, like our, I believe, like ourselves, that really takes a long-term founder-centric approach is um, is critical to making sure the company and the team end up in the right place. Great, yeah, I think I I, I agree with that. I, I the the only other thing that I I want to add, and I mentioned this, is don't become too complex. It's very easy to become very very complex in America. I, I mean, it's it's too easy. It's too tempting. So, so try not to fall for that trap if you're thinking long term. Uh, that's that's what I'm saying. It's it takes too long and it's too challenging to clean up things afterwards. If you can do things right from the get go, even it's more expensive and even don't don't get tempted by by taking the shortcut. And 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 let Americans, we you know we tend to take the shortcuts. Don't. Okay. So, thank you very much again. So uh, I think we are running out of time. Thank you again for your insights and guidance. We really appreciate uh, taking your time to share them with us today. Daniel, Mario, I hope you enjoy the panel as much as we did. So thank you very much to all of you and have a great day. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Deal Talk with 7MA. You'll find more information and resources based on today's discussion exclusively on our website. If you're looking to dive deeper into today's topics, head to 7mileadvisors.com to speak to one of our bankers today. That's the number 7, M-I-L-E-A-D-V-I-S-O-R-S.com. 
7M Securities does not make any investment recommendation for any company or security that was discussed, nor does the firm offer any tax advice. Consult your tax advisor for any tax matter that might apply to you or your business. 